0: you know, as humans, um, we should be very interested in that because estimates say that about um, 45 to 55% of the human genome is actually uh, the result of past viral infections or transposable elements.
1: Welcome to Next Gen Ethics, I'm your host, Veronica Sikora, and in this episode, we will be discussing the ABCs of ATCG with Dr. Hilary Archbold, the genetics course coordinator at U of M. This episode will introduce some of the basic terminology and models that we use in genetics so that we can better ground our future conversations about issues in genetics. If you're not sure what genetics is, please check out episode zero, where I provide more background on myself and this podcast. If you already have a biology background, much of this episode will be review. So if you want to brush up on your philosophy instead, check out episode 2, Intro to Ethics. There I talk with Dr. Dan Lowe, an ethics lecturer at U of M, about different ethical frameworks, which will apply to our discussions in later episodes. If you're still here, I hope you enjoy the ABCs of ATCG. Genes are the fundamental units of genetic information. Like bytes in computer code, genes store information with sequences of repeating symbols. But instead of ones and zeros, our cells use A, T, C, and G to encode information. These letters represent the nucleotides adenine, A, thymine, T, cytosine, C, and guanine, G. Together, these nucleotides are the building blocks which are strung together into long chains of DNA, the molecule of life. Since genes are made up of DNA sequences, making slight changes to the sequence can alter the function of that gene. Different versions of the same gene are called alleles. While we mostly have the same sets of genes, we carry different versions of them. This helps us understand why we are similar yet different. For example, everyone has genes for eye color, But we have different colored eyes because we have different combinations of eye color alleles your profile of alleles or your genotype influences your set of traits or your phenotype how when and why your genetic information materializes in you is the focus of genetics this flow of information has been summarized in the central dogma which is a term that francis crick coined in 1958 we discuss the details of this flow later in the interview But before that, it will be helpful to outline the three main processes described in the central dogma, replication, transcription, and translation. Replication consists in copying a strand of DNA to create an additional sister strand. Cells replicate their DNA when they divide so that the resulting two cells have identical or nearly identical copies of their DNA. I say nearly because sometimes there are errors in replication, which can lead to a change in sequence. These replication errors lead to mutations. Mutations can provide variation in our genes and can give rise to those different alleles I mentioned before. Besides DNA replication, there's transcription. Transcription consists of using DNA as a template to create RNA. RNA is a chemical cousin of DNA and often serves as a messenger. It can be a messenger because it is able to leave the nucleus where our DNA is stored and enter the cytoplasm where it can be translated into protein. Finally, there is translation. As I hinted, translation consists of using the RNA code to create a protein. This process is facilitated by a complex called the ribosome, which teams up with tRNAs to decode the RNA message into amino acids. These amino acids are then strung together, like beads, into a single thread called a polypeptide chain, or protein. Now that we've defined the basics, let's get some elaboration from Dr. Archbold.
0: Hi, uh, yeah, my name is Dr. Hilary Archbold and I have been a lecturer here at University of Michigan since 2018. Um, I also, Got my Ph.D. here at U of M in the Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology Department, studying how um, transcription is regulated in a model organism, uh, the fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster, Uh, And then I did a postdoctoral fellowship also at the University of Michigan Medical School that was focused on studying how um, RNA processing uh, proteins, specifically uh, one called TDP43, are um, mislocalized and misregulated in a number of neurological diseases, including uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, uh, which is commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease, and a related um, dementia called frontotemporal dementia. So I'm really, really interested in how genes are uh, read, um, processed, and um, sort of manipulated to create um, the phenotypes that together make up the whole organism.
1: Great. Yeah. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, So I wanted to start off by asking about our fundamental terms. So what do we mean when we talk about genetics? What does this field encompass?
0: So that's a great question. And we could talk sort of the entire time just about that question. But basically, when people are talking about genetics, they're talking about those heritable molecules, those molecules that can be passed on from generation to generation, from organism to organism, that are going to code for all of the instructions to build a functional organism that can interact with its environment. So the field really encompasses all of the sort of building blocks of that information. Um, you know, the actual physical molecules containing that information, but also how that information is stored, how it is packaged, how it is interpreted, how, is it, how it is read, and how it is actually turned into fun- functional molecules um, that make up the organism and all of its interactions.
1: As Dr. Archibald mentions, there are different scales to genetic research. At the micro level, a molecular geneticist might investigate the chemical properties of DNA. At the macro level, A population geneticist might look at how certain genes are geographically distributed to chart the evolutionary history of a species. Even at the scale of an individual organism, we can have multiple levels of genetic information. Developmental genetics, for example, investigates how the different layers of genetic material interact to build an organism. At one level, you have protein coding genes, sequences which provide instructions to make proteins. At another level, you have sequences which control the activity of those protein-coding genes. And even beyond that, you have sequences and chemical modifications which control the timing and location of gene expression. So in short, our genomes are more than just the sum of our genes. If our genes are individual instructions, then our genomes are blueprints, along with comments on those blueprints.
0: Um, Genes, you know, they get they get all of the, uh, I guess, spotlight. And up until very recently, protein-coding genes really got the spotlight. Um, but when we're talking about the genome in its entirety, um, we're not just talking about protein-coding genes. We're also talking about genes that maybe only um, are expressed at the RNA level, um, but that also have functional um, effects on the um, the working of a, of a cell or an organism. And we're also talking about all of that DNA sequence, which is responsible for helping to store and interpret that sequence. When those genes are going to be. Um, used, uh, why they're going to be used, what time they're going to be used, which cell type they're going to be used in. Um, So the whole genome is all of that uh, structural, uh, functional, and also um, what I might call residual information, in that our genomes are not always, you know, sort of these fine-tuned machines where every single thing has a purpose, they're also a history of all the things that has happened to a species over evolutionary time. And so what we see is that genomes are often littered with sort of past interactions, past, um, past events. Um, and so there's also a tremendous amount of residual information about the history of the evolution of the species in the genome.
1: Right, yeah. So, for example, we can look at what types of viruses have infected humans, um, just looking at the residues that they leave in the genomes.
0: Yes, exactly. And, you know, as humans, um, we should be very interested in that, because estimates say that about um, 45 to 55 percent of the human genome is actually uh, the result of past viral infections or transposable elements um, which are often called uh selfish genes um, that are able to insert themselves into the genome. And you might think, okay, well, that's not us, but it really is um because we actually know that most of the differences between, say, us and our closest um evolutionary uh primate relatives, um, the difference is not in those protein coding genes, the difference is in the history of those uh, viral and transposable element movements through the genome um, that often changes the regulation of when, where, and how much different genes are turned on and off, and that is actually a huge driver of evolutionary change.
1: Wait, so if non-protein coding genes account for the majority of differences between us and our primate relatives, then why does the central dogma emphasize the flow of information from DNA to RNA to proteins? Well, the original conception of the central dogma is actually more nuanced and indeed more storied than that, as Dr. Archbold explains.
0: And so the central dogma was a sort of a, almost a tongue-in-cheek phrase that was coined by Francis Crick in, um, I believe 1958, um, to explain that flow of information. And the central dogma posits that the flow of information, uh, basically goes from DNA to RNA to protein. And it's really interesting. I think the central dogma is actually one of the most um, sort of misunderstood um, concepts in some ways, in that in 1958, what Francis Crick actually said, and I want to do a direct quote here because I really love exactly how he put it, because Francis Crick was a very precise thinker. And so what he said in 1958 is the central dogma, this states that once information, in quotes has passed into protein, it cannot get out again. In more detail, the transfer of information from nucleic acid to nucleic acid or from nucleic acid to protein may be possible, but transfer from protein to protein or from protein to nucleic acid is impossible. Information means here the precise determination of sequence either of bases in the nucleic acid or of amino acid residues in the protein.
1: The main takeaway here is that information stored in nucleic acids, that is DNA and RNA, can be used to make a protein, but not the other way around. Consider translating a book from a foreign language. Your translated copy is going to lose some of the nuance of the original text. If you translate back into the original language, it won't be exactly like the original. Similarly, translation in genetics is a degenerate process. By translating RNA into proteins, you're losing some meaning, which you won't be able to reverse engineer. This is why information only flows from nucleic acids to proteins. In contrast to translation, because DNA and RNA are like dialects of the same language, you can pretty much go between them without losing meaning. This is why information can flow between nucleic acids.
0: And that... Last sentence there is really, really crucial in Francis Crick's understanding of the central dogma, because when he was referring to information, he was referring to specifically nucleotide sequence. And this is a really important distinction, because what we know in the central dogma is you have, of course, DNA is our basic storage molecule in the vast majority of organisms. So this DNA is, of course, composed of nucleotides, which can then be uh, replicated through the generations. Um, And then these DNA nucleotides can be transcribed into a very similar nucleotide molecule called RNA, which can either then be functional or information um, passing. And in the case of that information passing, that RNA can be then translated into a protein.
1: So nucleotides are the unit blocks of DNA and RNA, while amino acids are the unit blocks of proteins. DNA gets transcribed into RNA, and information passing, or messenger RNA, gets translated into proteins.
0: And this process uses something that we often call the genetic code. And so the genetic code, well, generally can mean sort of all of that information that results in... um, a functional organism, most often specifically refers to what we call the triplet code. And the idea that three nucleotides will code for one amino acid.
1: For example, the codon UUU always codes for the amino acid phenylalanine.
0: And this was really crucial to Crick's understanding of the central dogma because his idea was that Once you go down to the level of the protein, you have lost information. And you have lost information because this triplet code is degenerate. Because you need to use three nucleotides to code for each single amino acid, there are 64 possible combinations of what we call a codon. So the codon is this triplet. However... There are not 64 individual amino acids. There are only about 20 to 21, um, sometimes 22, depending on the species. Um, And if even after you assign three of your 64 codons to a stop codon, meaning don't put an amino acid here, let's just stop the growing polypeptide chain, what ends up happening is you have 20 amino acids, but uh, 61 codes for that. So multiple codes can equal the same amino acid.
1: For example, the codon UUC also codes for phenylalanine. So if you have a phenylalanine molecule in a protein, you won't know whether the original code was UUU or UUC, if you're just looking at the protein.
0: So the minute you have moved your information into the form of that amino acid, it is no longer technically possible to with exact certainty to figure out which of several codes could have um, specified that amino acid. So moving backwards through that flow of information now becomes impossible on a very precise technical level, although the the, um, possibilities have narrowed down some. So the idea of the central dogma, as Crick stated it, has actually not been refuted now almost, actually more than 60 years later. As Crick said it, the central dogma is actually exactly true. Sequence information, as he defined it, sort of flows unidirectionally at that RNA to protein interface. However, The popular conception of central dogma was actually really, really influenced by Crick's working partner, um, Watson, James Watson, who wrote one of the first molecular um, textbooks um, in 1965. Um, However, Watson made a simplification that almost immediately proved to be untrue. And so here's a quote from James Watson's uh, textbook, which he says, The arrow encircling, and he sort of drew a diagram of DNA to RNA to protein with this linear flow. And he says the arrow encircling DNA signifies that it is a template for its own self-replication. The arrow between DNA and RNA indicates that all cellular RNA molecules are made on a DNA template. But then most importantly, both these latter arrows are unidirectional, that is, RNA sequences are never copied on protein templates, and likewise RNA never acts as a template for DNA.
1: In other words, James Watson claimed that DNA could be a template to copy itself, as in DNA replication, and also a template to make RNA, as in transcription. RNA would then be used to build a protein, in translation. But the reverse flow of information, he assumed, could never happen. We couldn't use a protein as a template to make RNA, nor could we use RNA as a template to make DNA.
0: However, that was disproven by the early 70s. I mean, this particular statement didn't even last the decade, because what was discovered very early on in the 1970s was a molecule called reverse transcriptase, which was viral in origin, that allowed to use RNA as a template for DNA, which was sort of a backflow of the original um, central dogma um, conception, but not actually in... Um contrast to what Crick, uh, the point Crick was trying to make. So you know, so in the public media, there's this idea of like, oh well, the central dogma is not wrong because you actually have this flow of information on in all these different ways. And it really depends on how you're defining information. whether you're defining it specifically as that triplet code, Um, sequence information, or whether you're defining it much more broadly just in terms of genetic information. Because in addition to this reverse transcriptase, in the past 60 years, of course, we found all of these other additional um, sort of um, layers of information that exist beyond just sequence information. Um, The two examples that come um, up right away in my mind are this idea of um, prions, which are proteins which have the ability to impart folding information on other proteins. So of course, when we get to the level of protein, you have two layers of information, One being sequence information, which is the sequence of amino acids in a peptide chain. But then there's also a three-dimensional information in terms of how this protein is folded. And that is not necessarily determined entirely by the sequence um, that it is given. There are sort of external factors in chaperone proteins that will help determine the final three-dimensional form of a protein. And some proteins can have a sort of a self-templating effect on other uh, copies of the same molecule
1: if you've heard of mad cow disease then you've heard of prions the self-templating effect that dr archbold mentions is the idea that prions which are misfolded proteins can actually stick to their normal counterparts and cause them to misfold too this causes a chain reaction which eventually leads to misfolding of all of those proteins of that type in this way prions are conferring structural information even though they can't confer sequence information like DNA or RNA can.
0: So there's a lot of other information besides sequence information that is sort of now additions and modifications to the central dogma, um, but none of them actually contradict it. the way that Crick um, sort of set it out in 1958. The other sort of really uh, commonly discussed modification is this whole concept of epigenetics, which we won't have very much time to go into today. Um, But that's this idea that there are chemical modifications to the DNA molecule, which can be heritable in some ways. And that is also an additional sort of layer of information that is above and beyond the sequencing.
1: So despite misunderstandings of the central dogma, it's still a useful framework for us to understand how our genomes are interpreted and expressed. In what follows, Dr. Archbold breaks down the processes of replication, transcription, and translation, as well as how the latter two processes are controlled.
0: DNA is a double helix, meaning that there are two strands of nucleotides that are held together um, through hydrogen bonding. And the interesting thing about nucleotides is that they do this thing called base pairing, which um, many people may be familiar with. And what that means is that for every nucleotide on one side of the strand, the identity of the nucleotide on the other side of the strand is absolutely fixed. with very very few exceptions. So when we think about DNA, there are four nucleotides. We have our um our A's, our T's, our C's, and our G's. And one of the main sort of you know amazing things to come out of the race to elucidate DNA structure in the middle part of the last century, of course, which Watson and Crick won the race um, by um heavily Um, heavily borrowing from data uh, from their um, uh, structural colleagues, Rosalind Franklin, uh, Paul Gosling, and Maurice um, Wilkins. What they realized is that the structure of this base pairing automatically suggested um, the means for Um, passing the information efficiently onto the next generation through a process they dubbed semi-conservative replication, meaning that since you had two strands um, and the identity of one strand absolutely determined the identity of two strands, you could separate those two strands and use each one as a template to create a second strand.
1: So for example, if you had a DNA strand which read A, T, C, G... Then the opposite strand would have to read T-A-G-C. A's would pair with T's and C's would pair with G's.
0: And so the other really interesting thing was the idea that this was semi, um, this semi-conservative replication was what we call anti-parallel. And what this meant was that the replication proceeds in a specific direction. The way that the subunits of the DNA are built, uh, it only goes in one direction. So that meant that the start of one molecule was sort of at the opposite end as the start of the other one.
1: You can think of a piece of double-stranded DNA as a pair of freeways which run parallel to one another. On one side of the median, traffic flows north to south, while on the other side of the median, it runs south to north. Running parallel, but in opposite directions, so antiparallel. And so these
0: features of replication, our semi-conservative and our anti-parallel model, actually help us determine how transcription occurs. Because transcription is also going to use this semi-conservative anti-parallel method where now that you have these two DNA strands, you're going to have sort of the informational content of those. One of those two strands will sort of match in terms of information and orientation. um, And then the other strand will be the reverse complement of that. So we call the strand that has the same essential information that will become the RNA molecule the coding strand, because it contains that triplet code in a format that looks very similar, of course, with the exception of um, substituting a uracil base or U's in RNA for the thymine base or T's in the DNA.
1: Say that your DNA template strand reads A, T, C, G its reverse complement, which is the coding strand, would have to read T-A-G-C. Now, if you use your template strand to transcribe RNA, your RNA would have to be complementary to A-T-C-G, so it would have to read U-A-G-C. Notice that U-A-G-C is almost the same as the T-A-C-G sequence in the coding strand. The only difference is that in RNA, A's pair with U's instead of T's. So now when we're
0: thinking about transcription, what we have is you separate these two strands and you have the coding strand, which matches what you want to get to, almost. But then you have what we call the template strand. And so in the template strand, that's going to be where the... Um, el- Uh, enzyme, which we call a polymerase. It's going to be an enzyme that's making a polymer, many nucleotides put together, and it can read through this template strand and it will add on that reverse complement nucleotide. So then when we have the RNA built, it has the coding information um, because it copied it from sort of the opposite strand.
1: So to summarize, DNA has a double-stranded anti-parallel structure. Depending on what gene you want to transcribe, one strand of the DNA will be the template strand, while the other strand will be the coding strand. During transcription, the polymerase will use the template strand to make a reverse complementary strand of RNA. It's a reverse complement because it'll run in the opposite direction, and its shape will complement the template that was used to make it. Because the DNA template and coding strand are also reverse complements, the coding strand will have almost the same sequence as the RNA transcript. So that's the mechanism of transcription. But why, when, and where transcription happens is the process of gene regulation. Gene regulation refers to how genes are turned on or off in different cells, at different times, or in different environments. Among other things, this process allows our tissues to specialize and perform distinct functions
0: this really fine-tuned control is absolutely essential when you are, say, a multicellular organism. Because if you are a multicellular organism, uh, you don't necessarily want to express the gene that knows how to um, bump up hydrochloric acid production in your neurons. That's a gene you may only want to be accessible to be transcribed in your stomach cells. So this idea of specialization really takes a tremendous amount of control um, sequence uh, to be able to sort of um, have everything on demand when you need it. And so when we're thinking about gene regulation, there's been a huge amount of um, sort of research into looking at um, how... The polymerase is recruited to the gene um, at a region that is right next to that protein coding sequence, and that's called a promoter. And so the promoter is essentially a landing pad for uh, your polymerase. If you think about the polymerase maybe being like a helicopter with a team of technicians that are going to like kind of have to land and do something, the promoter is that, you know, helipad.
1: But access to the helipad is going to be determined by several factors. For one, there are non-coding DNA sequences, which can either promote or restrict how accessible a gene is to the transcription machinery. Sequences that make it easier to access the helipad are called enhancers, while sequences that make it harder are called silencers. Depending on the cell type, these DNA sequences might themselves be inaccessible, for reasons we'll explain in just a moment.
0: And enhancers and silencers are going to be these sort of additional um, control regions that sort of determine if the landing pad of the promoter is open and available for um, the polymerase to land and actually do its job.
1: Continuing this analogy of the helipad, we can think of DNA sequences like promoters, enhancers, and silencers as the asphalt of the helipad. They provide the space to land. But besides that, you can provide cones or other markers which change how and when the helicopter will land. These additional markers are called epigenetic modifications. Epi means on top of, so essentially these modifications contain information that is over and above the instructions written in the actual DNA sequence. There are two main epigenetic modifications, adding tags to the DNA directly or wrapping the DNA more or less tightly, as Dr. Archibald explains.
0: So you have these, you know, the idea of DNA sequence of specific uh, nucleotides that make a sort of a nice landing pad for, um, you know, proteins to interact with the DNA. But then, yeah, you have this level of epigenetics, which are chemical modifications either to the DNA themselves, which can make these sort of landing spots um, more inviting or less inviting. Yeah, like uh, cones on a helipad or like those... Those little spikes they put on um, skyscraper buildings to prevent uh, birds from landing and sitting there. Um, so you can make the DNA a little bit more inviting or a little less inviting by chemical modifications directly, or you can modify histones, which are uh, these sort of eight protein cores. Um, and so you can th- kind of think about, you know, DNA is a very long thin molecule, um, and it's very fragile. And so if you had, um, if you think of it almost as like a ball of string, um, and you're trying to knit a sweater, uh, you don't want that string entirely unwound before you start your project. That's going to make it very, very difficult to work on your project. So DNA is wrapped around these histones, and then the histones and sort of uh, DNA um, cores can then be sort of wrapped into um, higher order structures. And so this idea of epigenetics and chemical modifications, you can also modify these histone cores uh, to have um, sort of split your DNA into two basic categories. Uh, one being called euchromatin or true chromatin and the other being heterochromatin or different chromatin. And the euchromatin is the, what we think of as DNA as being that sort of open molecule that's accessible, that has these landing pads where polymerase can come and sit down and transcribe genes. Um, It's very active. So you get a lot of gene transcription. And so chemical modifications can be done to sort of keep the DNA in this open, accessible state. Um, However, in this other... example uh, like I used where you might not want to have a hydrochloric uh, hydrochloric acid-producing enzyme active, say, in your neurons, uh, what you can do is you can take that gene and you can modify those histones chemically. To um, make them want to sort of compact themselves, uh, wrap themselves up as tightly as possible, and make that gene inaccessible so you don't actually accidentally turn it on in a context that you don't want to turn it on. Um, So so the really interesting thing about these chemical modifications, you know, that is, you know, once again, one of these like sort of higher orders of information where it's, uh, you're sort of adding these chemical tags to say, you know, here's where we want to focus this is what we want. These are the genes we want to look at. These are the genes we might want to turn on. And over here, no, 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 no. That's that. That is not for you. Do not, do not turn that gene on. That's not something we want happening in this cell at that time.
1: Yeah, and I mean, just to add on to this analogy of the yarn project, uh, it's just to clarify for any listeners that might be, you know, wondering. It's true that all of your cells actually do have the same genetic sequence. So you're going to have the same genome present in all of your cells um, as a eukaryote. Um, So like as humans, it's true that your neurons will have the same uh, sequence present in them as your stomach cells. But if we think of this genetic sequence as a piece of yarn, it's just that the neuron has its yarn bunched up at different parts. Um, So it's less accessible at different parts compared to the stomach cell.
0: Exactly. And the interesting thing we see is that that, you know, sort of how, how the organization or that bunching occurs um, can change, yeah, depending on cell type, uh, during development.
1: So to sum, epigenetic modifications are like annotations on our DNA sequences. They consist of directly tagging DNA or of physically loosening or bunching it up. This affects the accessibility of gene promoters to the transcription machinery, and therefore controls the timing and location of gene expression.
0: That's really one of the functionally most important things that's happening, I guess, at the DNA level as cells are going through a process we call differentiation um, when you sort of first Um, you know, as an undifferentiated cell, you know, sort of like, well, which genes are you going to need? And so we see during development, cells make these decisions of like, well, okay, I think I'm going to specialize and I'm going to go in this direction. I'm going to be this type of cell. And you start seeing that compaction where certain, certain fates are turned off and say, well, I'm never going to need that information. And so I'm going to compact that information so that then when you get to the fully differentiated cell in a specific tissue, it has sort of access to a suite of genes. Um, that is going to be useful to it, um, but that, you know, what's, exa- you know, exactly what is accessible um, can actually then still continue to be affected by the environment. So we know things, you know, like stress and nutrition and um, activity levels can um, continue to sort of modify what is accessible in certain, um, you know, in certain cell types. Um, so that when that uh, translation occurs, you know you're, you're translating the right genes, and the right genes are available to be translated. Um, but then, of course, the regulation doesn't stop there when you get to this level of translation. So, okay, so now, you know, you've gotten your you've gotten your DNA in the right shape, you've gotten your landing pads open, and you get an environmental signal to you know um, uh, to turn on a gene. Then, once you have that gene transcribed, of course, um, the trans Transcript is just a set, you know, once again, it's just a set of instructions. So you have to get that set of instructions out into the cytoplasm and you have to get um, a protein made if it is a protein coding gene. If it's an RNA or non coding gene, uh, then that RNA is actually going to serve a functional purpose and and your job is possibly uh, done. Um, But if we think about this idea of protein coding genes and how we get from transcript to protein, Um, it's actually, there's still a lot of um, interesting work to be done. And so one of the first interesting things that has to happen is this idea of splicing. And I talked about the idea that there is a lot of, um, there is a sort of a lot of residual information in the genome. Uh, So often uh, you can have um, sort of information that you have transcribed that you don't need. And so um, there is this process where in almost all eukaryotic genes, um, not all of the sequence that is copied into the RNA transcript will actually make it into the final protein. And so these transcripts are divided into two basic um, regions, or two types of regions. Uh, The first type being an exon, X for expressed, and that is the information that is going to be translated using that triplet code Um, to take every three nucleotides and turn that into an amino acid in the chain of your protein. However, there's a second group of nucleotides in these transcripts called introns, and in for intervening regions, which means that there are these regions in the middle, they're just kind of stuck smack dab in the middle of the parts you want. And you have to get rid of those. And so splicing is the process of cutting out these intervening regions and gluing the message together into just what you want.
1: Think of the new RNA transcript as a multicolored piece of yarn with blue, red, and yellow segments. If you wanted a red piece of yarn, you could cut out the blue and yellow parts and glue all of the red parts together. The parts you discard would be introns, while the parts you keep in would be exons. If this sounds inefficient, it kind of is, but if you only have one kind of yarn, you have no choice. It's thought that some introns are actually the remains of inserted viral DNA or transposable elements that found their way into the genomes. So in a way, we can think of splicing as just a way of cutting out unnecessary information. On the other hand, splicing also offers some advantages in allowing us to maximize our information capacity. If you take just one piece of multicolor yarn, you can make three pieces of solid color yarn or many unique pieces of two-color yarn. By switching which pieces you discard and which pieces you keep, you can get different products from the same source material. In genetics, we call this alternative splicing.
0: You know, as humans, all we have, it's thought to be somewhere in the realm of seventy-five to 80,000 different proteins that are made by the different cells with somewhere around the realm of 20,000 genes. So you can kind of mix and match the pieces. And from one transcript, you can actually come up with multiple functional proteins. So this splicing is a really, really powerful tool to be able to sort of take pieces of proteins that function in a specific way and put those pieces together to make different machines that can do different jobs under different circumstances. So this is a really, really powerful tool to deal with a really complicated environment. Um, but then, basically, once you have this final message, once you've decided which version of the protein you're going to make, it needs to be taken out to the cytoplasm, and it will be translated by a really large protein complex called the ribosome. So the ribosome is actually a compendium of, like, five, um, five functional RNAs, some structural RNAs, and about 70 to 81 um, proteins that are going to be able to sort of assemble onto this nucleotide transcript and shuttle along it, stopping every three nucleotides and saying, okay, I have these three nucleotides, which amino acid am I going to put here? And of course, the ribosome is uh, assisted in its job by a RNA molecule called a transfer RNA or a tRNA.
1: In contrast to the messenger or protein-coding RNAs that we've been discussing, tRNAs are a good example of non-coding RNAs, which are RNAs that are never translated into proteins, but which can have the same functions as proteins have.
0: And so tRNAs work by having, because they have this RNA um, identity, they have those nucleotides that can do that semi-conservative, reverse-complementary base pairing with your transcript.
1: So if your RNA triplet is UUC, then only tRNAs with the complement AAG will bind. All tRNAs with this AAG triplet only carry phenylalanine. So for this reason, we can be confident that UUC will always be translated into phenylalanine.
0: So they can match up, and then each one of those tRNAs because it matches a specific codon, it will bring a specific amino acid that is um you know, has been decided that this three nucleotides um, has to match this um, amino acid. So therefore, you have really high fidelity between what the RNA message is specifying and the protein that gets built.
1: Yeah. So one analogy I like to use when thinking about the function of these tRNAs is they're sort of like an adapter plug. So, you know, when you travel to Europe, assuming you're from the U.S., let's say, um, they're going to have different outlets. Uh, so you can always plug in an adapter plug that lets you use the plug or language that you're used to um, and adapt it to a different language. Definitely. Translation is, it's a very well-named process because that's exactly what we're
0: doing, um, you know, with the uh, with the movement from the nucleotides to the amino acids. And then you'd think, well, gee, are, are we done yet? And uh, and the answer is no. There's still more sort of modification that you can do. After that protein is translated, you have this sort of not really one dimensional, but you sort of think you have this sort of linear string of amino acids. But what we see is then that string is often folded. Um, in a way that these amino acids are really interesting chemically, because unlike the nucleotides, which are very sort of similar structurally, and their sort of chemical behavior is very the same, um, amino acids can really vary uh, a lot. And this chemical actual identity of these different amino acids has a really big effect on how the protein will fold in three dimensions. And then those residues that can have these interactions, um, and you can make these sort of binding pockets and active pockets, and you can sort of build these structures that are essentially little machines that can now do a job. Um, So now what you can do after it's made is to... um, You can then sort of add on to these structures. You can do... um, Further modifications, so there's small molecules like uh, ubiquitin, uh, sumo, um, pulmitylation, meristylation, uh, the last two are uh, lipid molecules. So you can add sugars, uh, glycoproteins, um, you can add lipids, you can add other protein molecules, and you can really start adding on extra pieces to... um, additionally add to how this molecule is going to behave, what functions it's going to have. Uh, you can have sequences uh, within the protein or within um, the transcript uh, that get the either the protein after it's translated to a specific place in the cell or get the transcript to a specific place in the cell so that the protein is already sort of made where it needs to go. Um, so sort of tagging and, um, you know, processing is another really important um, place where you can sort of um, further fine tune the protein to what it needs to be doing. And so um, many of you may be familiar with the terms, the endoplasmic reticulum or the Golgi. These are two places in the cell, which are really, you can kind of think about them as this like sort of Um, hub post office, like the post office in the big, you know, the biggest city in a state where everything is being sent there and packages are being sorted and it's determining what's going where. um, Does anything need anything added to it? You know, is there any further modifications? And so we have this whole system set up to be able to get these proteins in exactly the form they need to be and getting them exactly where they need to go.
1: So to summarize, the central dogma consists of three main processes, Replication, transcription, and translation. This model provides a good framework for understanding the flow of genetic information from genomes to visible traits. However, as we heard, there are still many details of this flow that we need to work out. Understanding when and how transcription is turned on or off is a big portion of genetics research, for example. But beyond that, we also have much to learn about RNA and protein processing. One promising avenue in contemporary genetics is our so-called junk DNA. As Dr. Archibald mentioned, there is a lot of residual information in our genomes. But far from being junk, as it was once considered, these sequences can not only alter the expression of our functional genes, but they can also give us insight into our evolutionary history. This brings up interesting questions about ancestry, identity, and belonging, as future episodes will explore. To hear more on these topics, please check out episodes 3 and 4 on genetic testing and population genetics, respectively. Finally, thanks for listening. This is my first ever podcast, and I'm learning a lot as I go. If you like what you heard, or if you have any suggestions for future episodes, please email me at nextgenethics at gmail.com. That's nextgenethics, no punctuation, at gmail.com. Many thanks to Ronia Kavansug, Zuzana Luchikowska, Justin Schell, Erica Irvin, the LSA Honors Program, and all of my guests for making this podcast possible. I'm Veronica Sacora and this has been Next Gen Ethics.